Well, good morning and welcome to our combined Good Friday service. I'd like to begin this morning by reading from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I'd invite you to follow along with me in your Bibles. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Across the globe, Good Friday is the day in the calendar year where the Church of Jesus Christ pauses for a moment and soberly considers the scandalous execution of our Lord upon a wretched Roman cross. And make no mistake, a Roman cross was most certainly wretched. This torturous death known as crucifixion was a ghastly, and horrendous form of capital punishment, that it was so atrocious that it was even beyond the realm of being included in civilized conversation. Cicero, the ancient Roman statesman and philosopher, said it this way. He said, it is a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It is an enormity to flog one. Sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It is impossible to find the word for such an abomination. You see, crucifixion was a very slow death of suffocation. Having been severely flogged by a shrapnel-embedded whip, the victim, assuming they had survived that flogging, was nailed, hands and feet, to a rugged wooden cross, which would leave the victim in a slumped, posture. And in a desperate attempt to breathe, they would be forced to push up through their nail-pierced feet, causing severe pain, not only in their feet, but in their shredded back as they pushed it up against a rugged wooden cross, only to slump down again, with their body weight hanging from their nail-pierced hands. And this cyclic, exhausting, and excruciatingly painful struggle to breathe could go on for days. Yet the passage that we've turned to this morning here in Romans 5 is not designed to showcase the nausea of the cross, but rather the necessity of the cross. You see, the Apostle Paul begins with those words there in verse 6, while we were still weak. And by weak here, he's not referring to any apparent lack in our physical or emotional strength, no, what he is referring to here in these five small words is 
really just the Apostle Paul's assessment of the human condition. That we, you, me and all of mankind are ethically and morally weak. That with respect to doing good in the eyes of Almighty God or even inclining our hearts towards doing good, in the eyes of Almighty God we are completely incapacitated. Now it's true. Man often doesn't behave as wickedly as he otherwise could. Uh, Although the image of God in man was significantly tarnished at the fall, it was not completely obliterated. And so sometimes it can even be said that human behavior is somewhat commendable. Furthermore, in God's common grace, he restrains and subdues our immorality by means of civil, civil government and the like that, when it functions correctly, is a terror towards those with bad conduct. But at the end of the day, when you peel back the onion and you peer into the hidden motives and the secret intentions of the heart, whether you're a criminal on death row or a law-abiding citizen, the disposition of our heart is always bent towards evil. John Newton put it this way. The question here is not concerning this or that man, a Nero or a Heliogabalus, but concerning human nature, the whole race of mankind, the few accepted who are born of God. There is indeed a difference amongst men, but it, this difference, is owing to the restraints of divine providence, without which earth would be the very image of hell. A wolf or a lion, while chained, cannot do so much mischief as if they were loose, but the nature is the same in the whole species. Education and interest, fear and shame, human laws, and the secret power of God over the mind combine to form many characters that are externally decent and respectable. And even the most abandoned are under a restraint which prevents them from manifesting a thousandth part of the wickedness which is in their hearts. But the heart itself is universally deceitful and desperately wicked. You see, despite what the world may try and tell us, you cannot possibly reduce the atrocities of human behavior to being a lack of education or to a mere product of environment. Our hearts are desperately wicked. And because our hearts are so desperately wicked, we find ourselves unable to live a life that would merit our own right standing before God. We, we cannot please him. Paul says we are weak. And again, Paul's use of the word weak here is really just a synonymous term for the adjective he uses later in the same verse. Ungodly. We are weak and ungodly. He's saying that the only appropriate posture for us to adopt is one of complete and utter helplessness. We cannot in any way, shape or form rescue ourselves from our own plight. But the good news that makes this Good Friday so very good is that at the right time, God intervened in history. Now, Paul's words here, at the right time, might seem slightly curious. I mean, if mankind is in such great apparel, surely there's no time like the present. Let's just get on with it, right? If Genesis chapter 3 was all about the fall and the subsequent curse, why couldn't Genesis chapter 4 be all about the cross? Well, despite the obvious historical reasons, 
We weren't ready for it. We weren't ready for the cross. For many other reasons, no doubt, but we would never have known or been fully convinced of our utter helplessness unless we had first witnessed or read about the repeated failure of God's people in the Old Covenant. Paul has already made it clear for us in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We weren't ready for the cross. So, while we were still in our sins, God graciously intervened. And the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is this, what motivated his intervention? At the end of the day, with respect to his holiness, his justice and his righteousness, it would have been perfectly justified and permissible for him to just condemn us all to hell. So what motivated him to write himself into the story and send Jesus to die on that wretched Roman cross on our behalf? Well, the answer that we're given there in verse 8 is love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what we can't afford to miss here is Paul's very deliberate effort to illuminate the magnitude of God's love. Otherwise, we'll just be left in the swimming pool of subjectivity and we'll define God's love based on some misplaced or preconceived notion. He forwards a comparison for us there in verse 7. He says, One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now, there's two ways we could understand that. It's possible that Paul is making this statement with the terms righteous person and good person being interchangeable and effectively just meaning the same thing. So then a loose paraphrase of verse 7 would read something like this. You know, I can't imagine anyone, unless in the rarest of circumstances, dying for someone who is a morally upright citizen. I mean, I might dare to, to do so, but... That would only really be upon second thought. I suppose for a morally upright citizen I would. It might mean something like that. But I'm personally inclined to an alternative view. In this view, Paul is actually being quite deliberate in using two different terms and is making a clear distinction between the two terms, righteous person and good person. As if he's saying... One will scarcely die for a righteous person. In other words, one will scarcely die for someone who is a garden variety, randomly picked from the crowd, morally upright citizen. Uh, One would scarcely die for that. I mean, granted, they're well behaved, but I really don't know them. I'm not sure that I'd be willing to die for this random righteous person. But perhaps for a good person, someone who I know personally, someone whose kindness and affection I have received and someone that I care deeply for, for someone like that, oh, now I'm far more likely to die. I think that's what Paul is saying. And we resonate with that, don't we? We can at least at some level comprehend the idea of giving our lives for someone who is dear to us. I'm sure every parent in this room has played out the scenario in their mind of having to protect their child in such a way as to sacrifice your life defending them. 
In three weeks' time, we'll commemorate the heroic and sacrificial service of the Anzacs and other military servicemen and women who have given their lives to defend our nation and our freedom. And let's be clear, such acts are indeed loving. But Jesus' love is far greater than any of that. Jesus died for his weak, godless enemies. You and me. He didn't die for us because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. He didn't die because we were so deserving, but in spite of the fact that we were undeserving. And that's a completely different category of love altogether. This is otherworldly love. And it's a love that Paul says early in Romans 5 has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And as the redeemed of the Lord, we need to experience that love, don't we? Douglas Moo put it this way. He said, an emotional feeling of God's love in itself is little comfort to the person who is lost, condemned, doomed for hell. But a cold, sober, historical interpretation that indeed God loved the world on the cross is of little benefit to a person until that love is experienced is received by faith in Christ. It is when these are properly experienced as two aspects of one great love, ultimately indivisible, that our assurance that hope will not put us to shame will be strong and unshakable. So we know that Christ's death was motivated by love, but what did Christ's death actually achieve? In verses 9 and 10, Paul lists two things. Verse 9 is judicial. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In verse 9, Paul is, as it were, standing in the middle of our salvation. And he's going to take a look backward to the past, followed by a forward look toward the future. And as he takes that backward look towards the past, he can say that we have now been justified by Christ's blood. And when Paul uses the word justified or justification, he's speaking about our legal right standing before Almighty God. And if we're asking the question this morning, on what terms can we come before the Almighty Judge and not be declared guilty? The answer is none other than the blood of Christ. As the old hymn famously declares, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the best news for our soul is that the death of Jesus was not only necessary for our justification, but sufficient for it. Listen, God does not take any other factor into consideration when it comes to our justification. Okay, He does not examine our file and say, right, this guy can enter the pearly gates of heaven. Uh, his ticket is made up of 60% of Christ's blood, 30% of good works, and 10% really sincere fasting. No. Our justification is 100% bound up with the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We are far too helpless, far too weak, not strong enough to save ourselves. Martin Luther famously testified to this reality in his magisterial volume on the bondage of the will. He knew he wasn't strong enough. This is what he said. 
As for me, I firmly confess that if it were possible, I would not wish to be given free will or to have anything left in my power by which I could endeavor to be saved. Not only because in the midst of so many adversities and dangers and also so many assaults by the devils, I would not be able to stand firm and keep hold of it, but also because even if there were no dangers, no adversities, no devil, I would still be forced to struggle continually towards an uncertainty and beat the air with my fists. For no matter how long I should live and do works, my conscience would never be certain and sure how much it had to do to satisfy God. For no matter how many works I did, there would always remain a scruple about whether it pleased God or whether he required something more, as is proved by the experience of all self-justifiers, and as I learned over so many years, much to my own grief. On Wednesday night, I finally got round to watching the 2007 film Amazing Grace, which portrayed the incredible feat of William Wilberforce abolishing the slave trade. But what struck me the most and brought me to tears, if I'm honest, were the small cameos of John Newton, who I quoted earlier. He was the famous captain of slave ships turned preacher who was guilty of a lifetime of the most unspeakable atrocities. And in one scene, he's speaking with William Wilberforce about his endeavour to write an account of all his days captaining slave ships, all the shameful things that he had seen and all the shameful things that he had done. His memory was fading as an older man and he wanted to get it all out on paper while he still could remember. And he turns to William Wilberforce and says this, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great saviour. Let me tell you, those are the words of a man who understands the grounds of his justification. The blood of Christ. Paul has taken a look backward. Now he'll take a look forward. And he says, given what has transpired in the past, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, Paul here is looking forward to a day. He's anticipating a day at the end of history when God will pour out his wrath on the ungodly. He doesn't deny that the wrath of God exists, nor does he deny that God's wrath will come down on some people. But with respect to those who have been justified by his blood, they will be spared from the wrath of God. How is that possible? Did God simply spare the rod and decide to put away his Fury by virtue of his mercy? No. The only reason that we, the redeemed, will be spared from the wrath of God in the future is because Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf in the past. What do you see when you look upon Jesus hanging from the cross? If all you see is a 30-year-old Galilean carpenter suffering the torturous death penalty known to the Roman Empire, then you've really missed the point. Jesus did not just bear the pain of crucifixion, though it included that. He absorbed the complete and unrestrained fury and wrath of Almighty God that should have come down on us. If you want to answer the question, what did Jesus save you from? He saved you from the wrath of his Father. 
This is the great and scandalous judicial transaction that we soberly celebrate on Good Friday. And yet, what the atoning work of Christ achieved was not merely a judicial transaction, it was also relational renewal. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The great Bible teacher R.C. Sproul said that the one absolute essential precondition for reconciliation is estrangement. Because without estrangement, there is no need for reconciliation. There is no such thing as a neutral stance with God. You either love him with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, or you hate him. There's no middle ground. And when Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden, they spat in God's face and showed him complete contempt. And they ushered in centuries of relational hostility between God and man. And this relational hostility is twofold. On our end, there is our unrighteous, sinful hostility towards God. But then there's also God's righteous hostility towards us because of sin. Both parties are upset, but only one party is justified for being upset. And as he has done already concerning our justification, Paul can stand in the middle and take a look back at that same finished work of Jesus on the cross, and he declares that this same event that is the grounds of our justification and assures us that we're spared from the wrath of God, this same event has ended that relational hostility And the relationship that we once had with God in the garden has been restored and renewed. He even goes on to say there in verse 11 that this renewal in relationship is a cause for our rejoicing. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Because of the death of Jesus, we can have the personal, intimate, joy-filled relationship with God that we were created to have. And once again, standing in the middle of our salvation, Paul takes another look forward and says, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We'll address this more on Resurrection Sunday, but Jesus did not remain in the tomb. He rose again and ascended into heaven. And in his life, the life that he now lives, seated at the right hand of the Father, he continues to make intercession for his people. Using the analogy of um, setting a will, Matthew Henry cleverly wrote this. He said, Christ dying was the testator who bequeathed us the legacy, but Christ living is the executor who pays it. He that puts himself to the charge of purchasing our salvation will not decline the trouble of applying it. Or as John Newton famously wrote, "'Tis grace, grace, have brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home.